Welcome to New Alliance Podcast, our home for open conversations about the world. My name is Anthony Elgassane, and I'll be your host this time around. Today, we'll be having a conversation about comedy. We're thrilled to have with us Maz Jabrani, a comedian, actor, and writer who was a founding member of the Axis of Evil Comedy Group. Appearing in movies like Friday After Next, Maz has also written and starred in award-winning indie comedy films. Still touring live, he also hosts Back to School Podcast on the All Things Comedy Network. Unfortunately for him, Maz is someone I count as a friend. Uh, Maz, thanks for being with us. Thanks for having me, man. Tell them how we met. Well, so as far as I recall, I kind of was your bodyguard back then. Uh, you uh, yeah, needed a little protection friend, after show. Our good friend Michael, whom I met, who we both uh, love, saw me in a club in, in Beirut when I was there with the Axis of Evil doing a show. And he came up, he goes, are you the Axis of Evil guys? And I go, oh, yeah. And he's like, come here. And he grabbed the bottle of, I don't know what it was. It was like, a, uh, you know, uh, Jack Daniels. That was it was Jack probably Daniels. whiskey. Yeah, it was some whiskey. It was, mm -hmm. I think it was uh, um, like a blue, like a Johnny Walker or something. And then he just took my head and he started pouring it down my throat. I was like, what are you, crazy? And he's like, I'll do it too. And he was doing it. And you came over and you started punching him. He's a big guy. You started punching him like in a funny way. And then, and then from then on, I was like, you're my bodyguard. Michael, leave yeah. me alone. And, and we all became that. good friends. No, so what's funny about that to me, uh, and I don't know if, if you deal with this uh, as much as I imagine you do, but the story itself kind of corrects some misconceptions folks have about the, the Middle East. So... I intended to start the conversation by maybe chatting about, you know, your start in comedy. But uh, I think, you know, it's interesting to me also to know when you felt, uh, you know, you had your breakthrough. Was it the axis of evil? Yeah, I started doing comedy in 1998. I'd always, wanted, I'd always wanted to do it, but coming from my background, Iranian parents, they didn't want me to do it. So they kept saying, be a lawyer, be this, be that. Mm -hmm. And since I was 12 years old in school, I grew up in Northern California. I was born in Iran, grew up in Northern California, um, was a big fan of Eddie Murphy's, wanted to be an actor, wanted to be a comedian, started doing plays, did well in the plays. The teachers would always say, hey, you've got the quality it takes to be to do this. You know, you're not you're not nervous on stage. You're comfortable on stage. And again, my parents would say, no, 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 none of this. You know, my dad would say, these teachers are crazy. Don't listen to them. You're going to be a lawyer, doctor, whatever. So anyway, um, 1998, I finally realized, you know, you live once. You got to do what you love. And so I was 26 at the time. I enrolled in some um, sketch comedy classes, ended up in some stand-up comedy classes, and uh, that led to me starting comedy. And when you first start comedy, you go to all the clubs. I lived in L.A. at the time, so I would go to the comedy store, Laugh Factory, the improv, whatever. You go to coffee shops. You go to church basements. You go wherever you can get. Like anybody asked me, they go, I want to get into comedy. I go, get on stage as much as you can. Write as much as you can. And that's it. So I was doing that, doing that, doing that. And then eventually, Mitzi Shore, who was the owner of the comedy store, she was a, a Jewish lady who was watching the news in 2000. And she saw there was an intifada with the Palestinians and the Israelis. And she had this epiphany that we're going to need a positive voice for Muslims in the near future. And this is before September 11th. So she put me, Ahmed Ahmed, Aaron Cater, anybody else who was brown that wasn't Latino or African-American, they were on our show. 
and she called it the Arabian Nights. So we started doing the Arabian Nights show at the comedy store. You know, once every few months we do a show and um, it just grew, grew, grew. Eventually it was me, Ahmed and Aaron took it and changed the name to the Axis of Evil Comedy Tour. And we got that name because um, George Bush gave that famous speech where he said there's an axis of evil. And he said it's Iraq, Iran and North Korea. Um, and uh, that led to obviously them going to war with Iraq. Um, but we wanted to lampoon the title Axis of Evil to show how random and what a joke it was. So we we're making fun of Bush in that case. And uh, then we started doing these shows. And it was interesting because we were some of the earlier comedians from these backgrounds, Iranian, uh, Ahmed's Egyptian, Aaron's Palestinian. We we're one of the we we're some of the first ones in America doing stand up from these backgrounds. So whenever we do a show, our com communities would show up. So everywhere we went, there was this audience who'd never had anyone from their background doing comedy. So that really helped take off. And eventually what happened was I think some producers back in LA understood, oh, there's a market for this. So they helped us film the Access of Evil comedy special, which came out on Comedy Central in 2007. Then we did a US tour with it. And then we ended up doing a tour in the Middle East with it. And that's, as you said, what really, I think, put us all on the map as people that were known as comedians. Yeah, I remember that time very well. I was a student back then in Beirut, and it was um, it was exciting as a, as a Lebanese American. So, like you, I have these you know two backgrounds, right, heritage and citizenship. And it was really exciting at the time to see folks from our background defined broadly doing what was both specific to the community, again broadly, but also kind of universal. You were making observational comedy, political humor. You were touring. Uh, you talked about your family. It wasn't just, you know, the the high end sort of political stuff at the height of the so-called war on terror. But clearly, uh, your claim to fame, at least initially, uh, was tied to the very thing you were lampooning. Right? And I'm just wondering, maybe, you know, especially earlier in your career, whether it was acting and writing or or doing stand up, if you ever struggled with that tension. Uh, maybe we all yeah, do in I our think, own professions, but to to make it, we kind of have to engage in, in some of what's expected. Well, and at the same time, well, you clearly made it a point to both critique it and transcend it, right? Yeah, I think that I think the the beauty of stand up comedy is it's you. You can talk about whatever you want. So if I want to talk about whatever, I can make fun of myself. I can make fun of somebody else. Whatever I want to do. So when it came to acting early on, when I would get acting parts, uh, especially once they find out you're Middle Eastern, they go, oh, okay, great. Can you say, I will kill you in the name of Allah? And you're like, uh, can I play the other part? And they go, okay, but then you hijack the hospital. You're like, no, I don't, I don't want to do any of that stuff. So early on in my career, I did. I played in a Chuck Norris movie of the week where I played an Afghan terrorist who was coming to America to blow up a building. And I struggled with that. I was like, do I really want to do this part? And at first... You know, I had a, I, at that time, I still had a day job where I was an assistant in an advertising agency. So I was looking for a break to get out of my day job. And so I thought, oh, maybe this will help me get out of my day job. And so I also tried to take the role and say, maybe I can humanize this character and show why he's doing what he's doing. Because maybe when he was in Afghanistan, something happened 
where you know somebody killed you know the americans killed his parents or something and now he wants revenge maybe that's what i was gonna do so when i went to film it and i was playing in afghan in america they gave me my wardrobe they go here's your shirt here's your pants here's your turban and i said whoa 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 i go Afghans in America don't wear turbans. And they go, well, the producers want you to wear a turban. I go, Indian Sikhs wear a turban. We got to get this right. So then the poor wardrobe lady, she's like, okay, I'll go talk to them. I'll, I'll tell them. So then she talked to them. And then the next day she comes back, she goes, they want you to wear a turban. I was like, what? And it became the struggle where I was trying to convince yeah. anybody who would listen. Even the director, I was like, hey, the director happened to be Chuck Norris's son. I go, listen, he was younger. I go, my character wouldn't be wearing a turban. And he's like, you know what? I agree with you, but my uncle, who's a producer, wants the turban. I'm like, oh, God. So that felt really, to me, like I was selling out. And I said, I don't ever want to do these parts again. And as a matter of fact, when I came back to L.A., I told my agents, I said, no more terrorist parts. And then the TV show 24 came along. And they go, we have a terrorist. I go, no, thanks. And they go, but he changes his mind halfway through the mission. I go, ooh, the ambivalent terrorist. Now, that's interesting. So that was the last time I played a terrorist part. But the beauty of being a stand-up comedian is I can go on stage and make fun of that. And so I think on, on stage, in my stand-up, I was poking fun at the way that we were uh, seen or the things we had to do. Even if I talk about terrorism on stage, it was either making fun of the terrorists or it was making fun of the situation we were in as Middle Easterners. So I remember I had a joke. I, I did this in my TED Talk where I said, you know, I usually lay out something that's happened. I go, you know, they kicked off some Arabs off of an airplane in America because they were speaking Arabic as they were walking down the aisle. And then I said, you know, I realized as a Middle Easterner, uh, oh, by the way, I said, the, this family that was walking down the aisle speaking Arabic, they were asking each other where they thought was the safest place to sit on the plane. And somebody overheard them and got them kicked off the plane. And I said, yeah, we can't even talk nowhere about... for them. Yeah. yeah, we can't even talk about the safest places on a plane. So I said, uh, my advice to all my Middle Eastern friends, if you're walking down the aisle, you're speaking Arabic. If you're going to halama, 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 you got to throw in random good words just to put the Americans at ease. So in the middle, just be like strawberry, you know, and then halama, 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 rainbow, halama, halama, ice cream, whatever. So the joke was I was making fun of how they were perceiving us. So again, with stand-up, I think you can make a commentary, um, and I never felt bad you know, about making my commentaries. When you started out, and I'm just curious, um, and I don't know if this started for you, like you said, you were interested uh, as a kid, teenager, you probably knew you were funny. Maybe there was a, a couple jokes you made that led you to think you could explore it. I don't know how you found that, that passion, but what, what fascinates me is your point about the embedded point about lessons, right? So you're, you're satirizing the very sector industry you're in. And that's a struggle a lot of people, I think, of our background go through, right? You want to participate. You want to sort of enter the mainstream. At the same time, there's always a, there's always a price. And one of my favorite jokes you, you ever made was about this, uh, how you're sort of seen selectively as the resident expert on all things Middle East, like as if you have a discount pump at the gas station. You're just living in America, right? But I guess I want to know when you started, did you just want to be funny and sort of find the lesson messaging and education as you went along? I or did you did you I, have it in your mind at the beginning that because of your experience, this is something you wanted to do, right? Make people laugh, but also 
change hearts and minds and educate folks? There's two things. First of all, I think as a kid, I fell in love with comedy. So I always say I mm -hmm. got into comedy because I was a fan of comedy. So some of my friends mm -hmm. growing up were the funniest kids in school. Some of them, objectively speaking, I would say were funnier than me, but I just had the drive and the comfort to be on stage. There was friends that I had that were really funny, but they just weren't as comfortable. I was, on, I was very comfortable on stage. Um, even I was looking at my high school uh, newspaper senior, you know, in senior year, they vote for you and, and somebody had voted, you know, I got, I got voted best sense of humor. Now, does that mean you're funniest or you have a sense of humor? I have a sense of humor. And so I, I loved Eddie Murphy. I loved all standup. I watched a lot of standup growing up. And I would think that, I think what happened was I also have this interest in politics to this day. Now I have people when I, you know, post stuff on my social media sometimes people go stick to comedy you know when did you become a politician yeah. didn't you study political science yeah i studied political science but i'm Berkeley, also yeah right? i'm interested yeah i'm interested i think you should take a stand for stuff i think life mm -hmm. is too short not to take a stand and uh and so i think when people ask me i go my first goal is to be funny so if you watch my netflix special or if you watch any special i do there's gonna be a fart joke there's gonna be a joke about balls. There's going to be something that's really silly, but there's also going to be a political or social commentary joke in there. Um, and I think the, what happened was I was also, once I got into standup, I, I really was listening to Richard Pryor and Carlin and some of these other guys. I love it when somebody can make a, a point and be funny. So I love watching John Oliver or Stephen Colbert or, Daily Show, you know, uh, all these guys. Whenever I see somebody making a point and it's funny, uh, to me, that's icing on the cake. So the number one joke, that, the number one f goal, though, is to be funny. Because if you're not funny and you're just, then you're preaching. So you need to make sure there's a punchline to your joke. You know, I'll use like Chris Rock had a very famous joke about gun control. He goes, if you want to do gun control, don't don't put control on the guns you need to raise the price on the bullets yep so if a bullet is like five thousand dollars the guy will think twice before shooting somebody right so that's a funny joke and it's a smart joke and so yeah i think at some point i just i started doing social commentary with my comedy and i and i still do okay and so once you broke through let's say uh, whether it's the Axis of Evil uh, comedy tour or maybe a little bit before that, um, did you feel like you were given the opportunity to to be a comedian, a comic only, or did the politics bleed in even when it wasn't something you were trying to engage in and control? So I think we've talked about sometimes expectations from within the community, number one, but then what you've also mentioned regarding, let's say, the professional track. Arc. Well, you need to listen. Yeah. You need. So how do you to steer talk that? About, right. Yeah, you need to talk about what's on your mind. So, mm -hmm. and if and if and if you feel like, oh my God, I'm gonna get you know in trouble with my fans, the industry, my loved ones, then you gotta weigh it. Right? Is it worth my wife getting upset at me? And I feel like I gotta. I have to make this statement. Right. Is it worth the turmoil it's going to bring into my family? And, and also, by the way, can I step away from this heated topic for 24 hours and then revisit and see if I'm still passionate about it? So great examples have happened the past couple of years. 
during lockdown, I was doing a lot of like, get your, get your, uh, get your vaccines, you know, wear your masks. COVID is real. There was a lot of stuff like that. And I was trying to always make it funny, but also give my opinion, especially on social media. Social media is pretty immediate. And there were people who would push back. There was a lot of, within my community, there was a lot of Trump supporters. I hated Trump, but there was a lot of Trump supporters within the Iranian community. And I thought sometimes, oh, wow, I'm losing some of my audience. But I was like, you know what? I, I can't not express myself in the hopes of keeping my audience. And, you know, he does something, you know, he does a travel ban that bans people from Muslim countries from coming to America. I can't stay silent. He, he is putting kids in cages. I can't stay silent. I have to say something. Um, and so, you know, I, I think, I think you, you got to really consider these things and go, some, sometimes, it, sometimes it might hit you in the pocketbooks. But I think personally, if you express your opinion, this world has 7 billion people in it. You will find your audience. Just keep expressing your opinion keeping sincere. I personally always try to say I'm on the side of people. I'm on the side of, you know, uh, uh, finding more equality for people. I'm on the side of freedom for people. So whether that's me speaking up and criticizing the government of Iran, or it's me speaking up and criticizing the American government or, or some policies, I have to express myself. And no matter what you say, you're going to get crap from somebody. So you know, I can't worry about, I always say, if you're worried about pleasing everybody, now you're just a jukebox and you're taking requests. And that's not how you should make any art. Your art should have a point of view. Yeah, it makes sense. So you're, you know, you're not maybe seeking to provoke folks, but you'll accept if it's something important enough to you, provocation can be that price. And then you, you make that informed decision in your career yeah, in life, you can't right? Listen, you, you can't you triangulate, can't please, is your point. You can't please everybody. So again, like the term Muslim, for example, like the mm -hmm. truth is I'm not really religious. I was born in a Muslim country. My family was Muslim-ish. I had the pendant growing up. I would say, you know, um, Muhammad, Muhammad. like things like that. But I didn't know what I was saying. I didn't know what I was doing. And then when I grew up, when I started doing comedy, I realized, you know, there's, there's, there was a few times where I might do a joke or I might do a social media post where I'm like drinking wine or something or having a tequila. And then once in a while, out of 100 comments, one person might come back and be like, you know, Muslim, you know drinking isn't, isn't a good thing in our, in our religion. Or, or, or if I said something pro-LGBTQ, somebody might say, you know, gay marriage isn't accepted in our culture. I was like, then don't, I'm not going to pretend to be Muslim when I'm not that devout, like I am Muslim-ish and I will speak up for the people of, you know, Muslims. I will speak up for Jews. I will speak up for Baha'is. I'll speak up for Christians. I don't care who you are. I believe in you having the right to believe whatever you want. And I believe what I want. And so therefore, you know, I don't want to mislead anybody. If I'm going to go criticize or, or, or let's say have a progressive idea, let's say abortion right now is a very hot topic. I'm pro women's rights. I think women should get the right to choose. And there's a lot of religious types who are like, oh, who are, you know, how dare you? You're killing a baby. I go, well, then we disagree. And if that means you don't want to follow me as a fan or whatever, that's fine. I'll be fine. I'm going to be okay. So, you know, you got to live with that. Yeah. Do you feel like maybe at times life was like a series of McCain moments 
where you you know you want to maybe point out that you're in your words not a practicing muslim but at the same time there's this embedded acceptance of the critique when remember when he was like no no he's a decent man and the more refined oh, yeah, point yeah, would yeah. have been like almost seinfeldian is you know not that there's anything wrong with that you kind of feel like you want to elevate yourself as a person but you understand you're also whether you've chosen it or not like a de facto ambassador of a people and you're yeah, constantly just, kind of defending the, listen i listen sense? i i've had i've had people hit me up and if they approach me in a nice way i've taken mm -hmm. times to explain my stance on something and usually they might have come at me with like oh i was upset to hear you you know take this side and i and if they came in a nice way I'll, sometimes i'll respond and I go you know this is just so you understand what i was saying and quite often when i've explained they've come back with like oh uh i'm sorry you know i i, I thought it was something else we're good um and then there's people that come at you and they're like you mofo blah 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 and i just go delete i don't, I don't need to there's again i don't know who people are i don't know what's in their mind i don't know what motivates them I don't know. I really don't know. And and I can't so I can't sit there and try to argue or debate with everybody because of their point of view. My answer has been to say if they really come like I have had people at shows, you know, during, especially during a Trump joke, you, you know, you can't talk about our president or whatever. And I go, it's such a great country where you can have your opinion. I can have my opinion. And you know what you should do? You should do comedy and express yourself or write a blog or do whatever. Go express yourself. That's your opinion. Fantastic. So that's really where it ends. It's like, I, I can't change your mind. And you're, I mean, unless if you, you know, come to me from a, and point out that I, you know, was inconsiderate of something that I just hadn't thought about, then I'm open. I'm open to saying, oh, wow, you know what? I was wrong. Let me, let me change my opinion on that. But uh, but I I can't take requests again that you become a jukebox. So just curiously, we move on to more positive stuff in a second. But just curiously, when was it maybe worst for you personally, in terms of uh, whether it's controversy or backlash? Was it during the so-called war on terror, or the pandemic maybe when you made? some jokes about uh, I would for say, example, I would tracking, say, right? The tracking devices and how people are yeah, worried about yeah, yeah. injections when they carry on a smartphone that has all their information. Yeah. No, right? I would say I would say that it definitely got most uh, divisive during Trump. Um, mm -hmm. Absolutely. I think a lot of people lost their minds. And then you add on top of that the pandemic. But there was a lot. I mean, I listen, I tried. There was days where I was like, I, I mean, there was mo a lot of times where I was like, I'm not even going to go on Twitter because I know he's going to say something that's going to provoke me. And then I would be watching news and then the news would say, and President Trump tweeted out, you know, women should all stay in the kitchen or whatever, you know, Muslims are this, gay people, whatever it was. I was like, what? The? And then I was back on social media making fun of him. And then I was getting messages from, you know, other Iranians. A lot of Iranians like Trump because he pretended to be tough. Like, I'm going to get rid of the Islamic Republic of Iran, the, the get rid of the mullahs. And the truth is, as we all know, Trump talked a big game, but had no plan on how to deliver. So um, I think a lot of Iranians fell victim to his um, salesmanship. And to me, he was a bully. To me, he was um, and is a megalomaniac. I think that he divided the world a lot. Uh, you know, he continues to claim that the 
election was stolen when he knows it wasn't. It's a big lie. He's really, I think, I think it's a, he's really brainwashed a lot of people and it's heartbreaking to see. Um, but under that, when he was on Twitter and he was around, I think that was probably the most divisive uh, time. And anytime there's a hot topic, Roe versus Wade, uh, gun control, anything, I try, I do, I express myself. And, and quite often, you know, nowadays, because of the algorithms, you live in an echo chamber. So a lot of people that are following me probably come back and go, right on, I agree with you. But then every once in a while, somebody leaks in and goes, you're an idiot. And I'm like, I don't know what to tell you. <laughs> you know? It's interesting to me that, that you brought up Trump because there's this um, interesting trend among different communities, say Middle Eastern Americans across the board, had a few more folks than I might have expected. I don't know about you supporting Trump. Did you think it came down to like what we could call strongman syndrome? You, like you said, he's pretending that he's tough. Or is it, you know, like a lot of exiles, uh, regardless of whether they're elite, folks that have lived here a while tend to have hardened political views regarding the mother countries, so to speak. So I know, I think you know among a, Lebanese, yeah. that's been a common theme, right? Like folks who might have otherwise been... Uh, say Bush one Republicans or Democrats kind of gravitated towards Trump. And yeah, you're saying listen, that happened get, with Iranian Americans too. Yeah. Yeah. You, so. you, get, you get, you get two types. You get, you get the single issue voter who says, as long as you say you're going to get rid of the mullahs, I'm with you. Now, if you ask me, I, I don't like the mullahs either. I don't want them. I want to get rid of them, but I don't feel that a war with Iran is the solution because I think a lot of innocent people would die. And then, so then my next question is, what's your strategy, Trump? And he doesn't really have one. And he even said, he's like, I'd make a deal with the mullahs. I'd make a better deal than Obama made. So all of a sudden you're like, wait a minute. He said he's going to get rid of the mullahs. Now he's saying I'll make, like, make a deal with the mullahs. So which one is it? Yeah. So you have single I mean, they issue made it, voters. His administration cut out the government and made it, made it, began the, the deal with the, the Taliban, right? Yeah, he started the deal with the Taliban. He pulled out of the Iran uh, nuclear deal, which made it worse for America because then Iran just turned to China. Um, and, uh, and, and the people who are corrupt, who are the mullahs and the, and the, Isla the Revolutionary Guard, they find ways to make money. The people are suffering, not the, the government. Anyway, um, so you have your single-issue voters th that say, oh, this is what it is. He said he's going to do that. Then you have... A lot of conservative, if, if anybody's any religion, they tend to be more conservative. So a lot of times I talk, to, I talk about how these Christians who are like, you know, Sharia law and, you know, the Jews and da, da, da. I go, you have a lot more in common with Muslims and Jews that are religious than you would know. You're probably all anti-LGBTQ. You're probably uh, want to limit women's rights. You're probably anti-immigrant. You're probably a lot more closed-minded than you are open-minded, a lot less progressive. So you run into that. Anyone who's highly religious will, if you have any progressive ideas, you know, like if I say, oh, I'm all, I support people that are transgender. I support them. You'll get comments of people going like, that's disgusting. You know, I go, who are you to judge? You know, so you have that element in our community. And then the third element is the strongman element, which is they say more cops, arrest these people, throw the homeless in jails, blah, 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 blah. And I go, all right, it hasn't worked, but sure. So speaking about debate and maybe polarization, uh, I'd been wondering how in your lifetime or professional life in particular, comedy has changed because, you know, from the outside looking in as a consumer of the content, uh, looking at, you know, whether it's Bill Burr uh, or others, 
uh, talking about maybe exaggerated, maybe not cancel culture, political correctness, wokeness, and so on. Uh, you know, there's, I guess, a couple sides to this, right? You, you've got folks who might be critiquing you for being soft on substantive issues. And then we have folks who, when it comes to your comedy and work, and I, I don't know if this is true in your case, might feel you're being inappropriate or insensitive or using a wrong term and so on. And I just wonder if it's changed as much as the conversation indicates over the past, say, couple decades. This yeah, there's definitely, concern yeah, with sensitivity and how it affects yeah, you as a working comedian. Yeah, there's definitely been that. Like, I mean, first of all, like when I first started out, I was a big fan of Peter Sellers, mm -hmm. uh, you know, the Pink Panther, the party. So Peter Sellers played a French guy. He played an Indian guy. He played all these characters. So I was like, oh, this is great. I'm an actor. I want to play all these different characters and I want to do all these different accents. Well, I used to do the accent. So if I'd be, you know, I'm married to an Indian woman. So I would say like, oh, yeah, you know, my Indian father-in-law, you know, and I would do the accent, et cetera. But we're in this world now where, number one, I think sometimes you're looked at as a hack when you do it. So it's like it's too easy. If the joke is the accent, then it's too easy. Um, and then secondly, there is a, a thing of like, hey, do the joke without doing the accent. You could talk about the other, you know, if this is somebody in your family who's of another background, you could talk about it, but don't do the accent um, because there's some of that political correctness stuff going on, right? So, but I think that, I think we need to evolve as comedians because back in the day, you know, we hear this all the time where I was Iranian, I had a black friend, I had an Asian friend, I had a, you know, Jewish friend, I had this friend, and then, you know, you might make fun of each other with the stereotypes from each other's backgrounds and it's all out of love you're ribbing each other right um but uh, you know we've we've come past that to the point of like going okay i've kind of really gotta i gotta do better i gotta consider like if i see somebody if i see my lebanese friend do i right away go like hey man you got a bomb in your vest you know i mean that's such a simple joke right so what, what's another joke yeah. I could do? What's another thing? So I think we got to just, I yeah. think we got to be open to evolving. So a lot of comics who I think got frustrated with being like having to walk on a tightrope because mm -hmm. they don't want to offend people. I think a lot of comics then, then had, there was a backlash where they were like, you're trying to control me. This is, you know, cancel culture, et cetera, et cetera. But I tell those comics, I go, listen, as somebody who's been, talking about politics since the Bush administration and then during the Trump administration, I can tell you that I had people at my shows during the Bush administration saying, you can't talk about our commander-in-chief during a time of war. Um, how dare you make fun of President Trump? Like all that stuff. And I go, wait a minute, you guys are saying that the left are snowflakes and they're doing cancel culture, but you've been cancel trying to cancel me since back then. But the whole point of America and democracy is that we can make fun of our leaders. We should be able to make fun of our leaders and, and go from there. So I think that we should be open to learning because the younger generation, no matter what you say and do, they are who they are. I have kids and they'll tell me sometimes, oh, my daddy, that's inappropriate or whatever. And sometimes I'm like, come on, guys. And then I sometimes I go, gee, if I keep that mentality of come on, guys, I'm going to look at my audience right. and it's going to start dwindling because right. it's going to be this younger generation is different. Not to say you still should. Comedy pushes the envelope. You should push mm -hmm. the envelope. But if you are, if somebody comes to you with a good enough 
argument that you sit there and go, oh, wow, you know what? That is a little outdated. I mean, think about it. Like, you know, people used to throw around certain words, you know, the N-word or for LGBTQ, the F-word or whatever. Those words were thrown around. Right. On stage, like on no film, you could still, you see some of the most famous comedians in the world. It's right there for us to watch it. And just 10 yeah. years later, even if, even if even if your substance was always correct, right? Now yeah. we have this point about how are you talking about the issue? So is yeah, your point like you have to be willing to, yeah. You got to evolve. Otherwise, you're going to be obsolete. So what's funny about this is one of my favorite jokes uh, growing up that you did was, not that I'm too much younger than you, but was uh, <laughs> was the uh, Arab and Persian accents. Yeah, I think that's a good example, maybe what you meant about, look, the accents themselves aren't the joke. They're enhancing the actual funny bit. Which in turn has an insight about, you know, other aspects of our, you know, speech patterns and, and intensity, let's say. Um, but do you, do you think you would still do a joke like that today, for example? Again, again. Because like I something can be you know, funny and offensive or not funny and offensive. And that was clearly yeah, listen, funny, regardless yeah. of whether it's offensive to someone. I would say, listen, right? I would say about that. I would say also it's it's the intention of the joke, right? I'm on stage going... I love you guys. I love Arabs. I love, yeah. you know, whoever else is in my eye. I love you. I'm not sitting there going like Arabs are dumb and Persians are not. I'm saying, you know, that joke comes about when I go, I go a lot of people, and this is true. A lot of people in America don't know the difference between Arab and Persian or Afghan. They don't know. They think we're all just Arabs and that's neither good nor bad, but it's, right. it's, it, the only reason it's bad is because they don't realize there's different countries in the Middle East, some of them don't get along with each other. Some Arab countries don't get along with each other. I mean, yeah. like, they don't realize all that. Like, they've really gotten into this whole thing of, like, this idea where people go, like, we should just bomb the shit out of them. <laughs> bomb the shit out of who? Like, who yeah. are you bombing? Why? Right? Um, and so that joke came about with me saying, they're different countries, we're different people. And then I just tried to simplify it in a comedic format by saying, you know, the difference between Arabs and Persians, you can hear the way we talk. And Arabs talk a lot faster. Persians talk a lot slower. Arabs sound like they've done cocaine. Persians sound like they've smoked heroin. And again, that I don't think is an offensive joke. Now, if somebody comes up to me and that's offensive to me because of X, Y, and Z, I would hear them out, but I still might keep my opinion and go, eh, mm -hmm. I'm going to disagree and I'm going to keep mm -hmm. doing that joke, you know? So, yeah, I don't... Uh, I get, listen. So when you toured the Middle East... Yeah. Or West Asia and North Africa, let's say. Yeah. Yeah. What uh, people, I, I remember I saw you twice in Beirut uh, and saw some footage of you in the Gulf and other places. People seem to love that kind of humor. And I think part of it was you brought our slice of the world into the mainstream. But part of it was that those were good damn jokes, right? Yeah, of uh, course. So, I so, think, I think. So, you know, first... so how did people react? You know, do you remember back I think, then? And I since, think. You know, yeah, I think people want to be talked about. Like, I've done shows before, and then people come to me afterwards and be like, you didn't do any jokes about Greece. We're Greek. Where's the Greek jokes? And I'm like, I haven't been to Greece. I don't have any Greek jokes. You know, you didn't do any jokes about Cyprus. I didn't even, I don't have, I've never, where's Cyprus? Like, I mean, it's like, so when I would do shows, and I would go to Lebanon and do shows about my experience in Lebanon, the Lebanese were like, loving it. When I would go to Kuwait and do jokes about Kuwait, they were loving it. And then I would go into my own jokes, and they still enjoyed it. 
But you have to do jokes about where you are. I learned that watching one time Richard Pryor. He did a special where he was in New Orleans and his first five minutes was about life in New Orleans and being there for a week. So you got to realize the audience is all from New Orleans. And when he's talking about like, you people are crazy. I was down the street and this happened. They're like, ah, they're loving it. So similarly, when I, when I talk about being in Lebanon and going, you guys, I saw Dotson in Lebanon. I go, I go, Nissan stopped making Datsuns yeah. <laughs> in 1978. I go, how do you guys still have a Datsun? And then people are laughing about that. And I go, I had a, I had a, uh, and I'm talking about like the, the way the cars like just kind of float about and how my, the, my taxi driver had a Mercedes from 1982. And I swear to God, I could feel my ass touching the ground because the seat was so worn out. Yeah. Just things like that. That's traffic jokes, but that's me being an out outsider talking about coming to lebanon you know almaza i was talking with somebody gave me an almaza beer and i was like that was a beer <laughs> yeah and then and yeah. then the next day like the almaza beer shows up people want to be talked about you yeah. know the joke i did about in lebanon i said i said you know lebanon you guys love to party i go we're here you guys don't even have a president and i was like you know there's no president are we gonna stop the show they go no but we're gonna start a party you know and then a Miss Lebanon showed up at, at one of our shows. I was like, we don't have a president, but we have Miss Lebanon. Was, and the crowd went nuts because they were like, oh, that's so funny because you're observing our reality and, and telling us about it and, and we can laugh about it. You know, I think life is so hard in, your, in the other 23 hours when you're at a comedy show for an hour or two. Oh, absolutely. Even if you're... Even if you're talking about serious subjects, no, it the Lebanese lets you don't need laugh. a comedian to tell them how bad it can be or how tough it can be, right? They're yes. there for relief. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we had that in, you know, another country that was very intense was tell Egypt. Me. I did shows in Egypt after the, um, the Arab Spring and, you know, being in Egypt and talking about even alluding to the topics. You don't even have to say it necessarily. You know, like when I first came and it was right after the Arab Spring and I was like, hey guys, I haven't been here in a couple of years. What's going on? Anything change? And they're laughing already, right? Um, so they want you to talk about that stuff. Um, and I think, I think people appreciate being talked about. And again, I'm not, you know, I'm not going to Kuwait and going like, oh my God, you guys are idiots. You know, no, I'm talking like, I did a joke on my most recent special where I talked about um, uh, when I did the show, I did a, I was in, I, I'd just been in Kuwait and they said, the censor wants to watch your show. And I was like, but he doesn't speak English. They go, he still wants to see it before you start. So then I'm on stage doing it. And before I do it, they go, by the way, the censor is going to give us a license to do a show, but they don't have a stand-up comedy license. They're giving you a license for like a dramatic play. So I made fun of all that, and I, and I made fun of how I was on Kuwait Airways and how every time there was any reference to anything remotely sexual, they would cut it out. So I was watching this movie with Nicolas Cage yeah. called The Runner, and he mm -hmm. would come to kiss his wife, and it would cut, and then they'd be somewhere, he'd be running. Car chase and, and, or something, yeah. Yeah, and I was like, it was, and, but when I'm talking about that in Kuwait, the Kuwaitis are laughing because they've experienced it as well. So we're making fun of authority there. We're not making fun of the people. We're making fun of authority. Absolutely. So I was going to ask, do you miss or did you miss that part of, of your work being on the road and touring? Uh, 
meeting folks, performing in different cities. Uh, I, I don't know if you shut down totally during the pandemic. I know I saw, you know, one of your shows in D.C. and New York actually after, let's say, the peak pandemic. But it's still kind of going on, right? So how's that affected your your work? Uh, what do you miss most about it? Well, I have I have two you know kids that are like preteen, teen now. So mm-hmm. I love being home. I mean, I love being home. I, you know, my my wife, we get to spend time. My dog, we have a dog. Um, you know, when I first started touring, the travel was exciting. I was younger. I enjoyed it. Now, really, I enjoy the stage. I enjoy all that stuff. But when I'm in a city, a lot of times you're jet lagged. You don't really have time to really go see stuff. And, you know, when I first met you back in the Axis of Evil days, we were young enough where it was like, we're going to a club afterwards. Let's go to a club. Now yeah. people go, you want to come to a club? I'm like, no, thanks. I'm good. I just want to go get a meal and go home. So, um, you know, obviously meeting people can be nice and all, but at the same time, really, you know, being home is a great thing. So that was the silver lining of the pandemic was I got to spend a year pretty much at home. I would do Zoom shows. I would do some drive-in shows, which was we'd be on a stage. They'd be projecting your image on a screen and then people would be in their cars watching the screen and listening on the like a radio channel. Um, but it was great. We got to watch a lot of movies with our kids. Um, you know, I went on bike rides with the kids. Um, you know, so there was a lot of anxiety, obviously, with people, you know, trying not to get COVID and all that stuff. But there was also, again, it was a it was a chance to be with the family. And so I didn't necessarily miss the traveling, although now that things are opening up more, it is nice to travel again and be able to get out there. Um, you know, that's how I, my, my main income is made. So it's nice to be able to actually get out and work again. So that's good. And and so when you're trying to refine, let's say, your performance, as you said before, you know, there's folks that are funny, but this is, I'd imagine, a kind of a craft, right? You're you're refining your stage presence, your interaction with the audience, and more than that. Do you use the touring to do that, or is, do you work the material out in, like, L.A. clubs first and then go on the road, right? How does... Mm-hmm. How's that work for you? Most of the material gets worked out at the LA clubs. At the LA clubs, we get up, do 15 to 20 minutes whenever we get up. I try to get up like five, six times a week. And in that 15, 20 minutes, I'll do, you know, most of it is material that I've done or I'll do some crowd work, but then I'll have an idea or two that I want to work out. And then whenever I perform, I always record on my iPhone so I can hear it back. And I go, okay, that joke's working, that idea's working. So a lot of my writing is done on stage. A lot of comics write like that. And then that said, still, and when you're on the road, you do an hour long. So there are times when you're doing an hour long set and you come up with some idea, you go, oh, that's a good joke, let me work it out. So it's all written on stage. And then you do about a year or two of that and travel the world with it. And you do the US and Australia and the Middle East and Europe and all that. And then you eventually film that and it becomes a comedy special. And then you go back to writing new stuff again. And so now what can we look forward to from Mazdrabani? Are you, you're touring again, you said. I yeah, saw so, from your calendar, you got stuff going on this year. Yeah, I'll be going to Europe in, in September. I've got fall dates in the US, hopefully go to Australia. Always try to work in some Middle Eastern dates. Um, my latest comedy special, which is on, uh, Peacock TV. And I think in the Middle East, it might be on orbits. Uh, people can stream it. It's called pandemic warrior. 
uh, that was filmed in Dubai in 2019 with a few minutes filmed in my house during the pandemic. So that's called Pandemic Warrior. My Netflix special is still on. It's called Immigrant. Um, I've done, I think, five solo specials and one special with the Axis of Evil. So there's six things out there. People can follow me on YouTube. They can follow me on Instagram. Everything I do is at Maz Jobrani. Um, and then I'm planning on shooting a new special uh, in hopefully the coming months. Um, and then I just keep touring. I keep pitching TV shows. You know, you got to be entrepreneurial in this business. So I try to be, and uh, I hopefully I just keep putting out products for, for people to find me. Well, I know personally that I and a lot of our team and readers and listeners uh, are looking forward to your work. We're excited to see what you have in store for us. And we thank you for your time today, Mas. Thanks a lot. Yalla Habibi. Thank you. <laughs> if you'd like to know more about our guests, you can follow Maz on Twitter at Maz Jabrani and his website at mazjabrani.com. Our own Joshua Martin produced this pod. And once again, my name is Anthony Elgassane, and I've been your host this time around. You can subscribe to the New Lines Magazine podcast on your favorite podcast app. And of course, check out some of the best stories from the Middle East and beyond on our website, newlinesmag.com. Thank you.